0: Hello there. Welcome to Everything's Relative. I'm Eve Sturgis. This is a podcast. So this is exactly what happened. A dude sent a message to my husband on social media. My husband called him on the telephone. That dude said he had been waiting for me to figure out that he was my dad for over 30 years. And I said, why would I be looking for that dude? Because I already have a dad. And then my whole understanding of identity, family, secrecy, and biology changed. So I made a podcast about it, and this is it. I talked to people from all around the world who have had experiences like mine, because it turns out there's a lot of us. It turns out there are a lot of ways this can happen. It turns out there's a lot to say about all of it. And sometimes I like to talk about what's happening in the world or my life because I think our DNA discoveries are important within the context of our personal lives and social history. But today I'm almost going to skip it entirely because all that's happened is that this week is that Russia invaded Ukraine, Texas passed some horrifying laws about transgendered children and their families, and the worst environmental report about the earth and where we're headed came out. So... Maybe next week it will be different. Maybe by the time this episode comes out, everything will be better. I hope so. Today I had the distinct pleasure of talking with author Peter Bonney, whose book Uprooted is now available everywhere that you want to buy books. Um, I read it in November and can happily and honestly recommend it to anyone interested in the history of donor conception through the lens of a memoir-style mystery. Uh, I talk with him about how I feel about it and what I thought about it and how I describe it. So I won't do it here. I'll just start the tape. You can listen to us uh, describe it together. Thanks for being here. This is Everything's Relative, and I'm Eve Sturgis. So I am sitting here today with Peter Bonney, uh, writer, author of Uprooted. Family Trauma, Unknown Origins, and the Secretive History of Artificial Insemination. Um, thrilled to have had the experience of getting to read the book a few months ago, and then also now receiving it in the mail. It's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> it's, um, I don't know who who is responsible for that, but uh, it's a really good feeling book, and I think that matters.
1: I'll give uh, Greenleaf Book Group all of the credit.
0: All right. Thank you, Greenleaf. You make a beautiful book. Um, so so this book is is great, it's wonderful for lots of reasons, but um and you know what? Before we get into that, can you just tell us a little bit about your childhood or what it was what was what life was like um before your discovery? And um doesn't have to be a lot because we ha- what I really want is for people to get the book and read about it. Um, but let's give everybody a Cliff's Notes version. Okay.
1: Uh, sure, Eve. Um, so, how did I get to be the person I am? Yeah. Uh, basically, I think there were three things that were ex- ex- experiential. Uh, one was a uh, somewhat of a dysfunctional or disruptive childhood. I was in a uh, working class family, I was in 11 different schools and several states uh, between the first and the eighth grade, uh, rather unstable life, a sick dad, Uh, a state college education, really the first in my family to have uh, received that. That opened many doors of opportunity for me. And then the uh, military experience as a special operations infantry team leader in Vietnam, which helped shape my leadership style. Uh, I always took my DNA for granted Uh, But then, hey, how about that DNA? In 1995, uh, my mother, who was recovering from a post-operative stroke, spilled the beans that uh, I wasn't uh, the biology that I thought I was. My father was sterile, and uh, they had sought the help of a fertility specialist from Harvard Medical School to help my conception, and my conception was through an anonymous sperm donor. So, I had to go like this, you know, as mm-hmm. the same person, but everything had changed for me at that moment,
0: yeah, actually, I have marked the paragraph. can i talk can I read it? sure this, this paragraph that you wrote, um which I think is so it's so lovely because it's I think at all, I just think everyone can really everyone who who has had this experience or is an n p e of some kind would relate to this, but um, in that moment, my life turned upside down. Everything I knew about myself. About where I came from, about who I was, changed in an instant. Everything I thought I knew was challenged with six simple words. I would go on to discover that my conception was not the product of an affair, but had been achieved through a process to which my dad, the only father I ever knew, had fully consented. Thus began my quest to finding my new identity. And uh, what? But however. However, However. Uh, this book is not just about your personal emotional journey, although that's that's in here a little. Um, what you really discovered, or what you, and also ah, I have so many things I want to say. Um, <laughs> what you <laughs> discovered was that you discovered things about the whole world of the whole world of uh, donor conception. Um, or artificial insemination or IVF, like all this, this whole world. Um, and so you really made it a mission to to understand the whole culture and industry and world and science around wh- how this happened. Instead of just focusing on who Me. who was, yeah, who was your who was your dad. Um, and so in that way, your book is an amazing contribution to this growing library of books, which sort of expose and inform us about all these different ways that, um, the, the, the D, it's the, the ways that DNA are sort of, the DNA testing is blowing worlds up, but but also just a, about all these like strange histories that are really foundational to our country, but nobody knows about
1: it. But remember in 1995, uh, when I first learned this, that the internet, was in its infancy. Uh, Google was three years away from even being founded. And uh, 21st century DNA technology had 12 years to go before 23andMe came out with their first product. Uh, My mother misremembered the uh, name of the doctor, uh, didn't get the address exactly right. And I had basically no clues to find the source of my seed. And I was just bound and determined that I wanted to know my genealogy, my uh, genealogical medical history. And, you know, did I have any siblings? I was raised as an only child. Uh, and uh, there were no records kept by any of the doctors at that period of time. So uh, I was just banging into stone walls in my research. So my only, uh Thing to do, which I found somewhat therapeutic, is just research the daylights out of the very industry or the science that enabled my conception to begin with. And I looked at it, Eve, uh, from um, early biblical references right through to today, and that was 22 years of research, basically on and off, uh, to find uh, the the uh, the industry that created me and find the source of my seed. Now it was with twenty-first century technology in two different waves that I was able to find uh, the source of my seed, but that took a while.
0: I think so many people would have thought, you know, well, I've, I've, re- I, I, not everybody would have just been so dedicated to to researching. And I appreciate that you said it was sort of com- comforting or or therapeutic to do the research. Um, I'm very interested in that concept. It's. Um, that uh we are we are often calmed by data you yeah. know information that is not emotional facts can be very mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. soothing in a way so i think that's really interesting and you help confirm my theory about that <laughs> um, in your research in learning about this this history do you feel like there's something that was the most surprising
1: well when I, when I learned, actually, I had a friend that uh, used to breed Rottweilers. And when I exposed him to some of my findings, uh, he said to me, you know, there's more regulation around breeding puppies than there is around the conception of a human being. And when I discovered we have an industry, and it is an industry, it's a multi-billion, billion-dollar industry that is unregulated and free to conceive dozens if not a 100 or more siblings from the same donor without their knowledge uh, that I thought, gosh, this could be a thought-provoking book if I really wrote this down. And when I finally in 2017 learned the source of my seed, I found my story completed and with that I just had to write it down and share it.
0: Another thing that's really interesting or I found Interesting or different about your book is that you have this extensive uh, knowledge and experience in the business world, and so for I I just can't imagine that it didn't really affect your perspective of reading all about this industry and this business and the money. And for someone like me, I don't I basically don't understand anything about business <laughs> businesses business and money and you know economy but you have a great way of exploring it and bringing that up that was it it's very accessible but and also just very interesting i think a lot of people would have just skipped that so i i just want to you know emphasize to listeners or anybody interested interested in the book that it it's it's like historical it's uh, and then it's also explores economically what this means and then it's also personal
1: yeah well when you have a when you have a business it's a multi-billion dollar business growing by double digit percent Proportions uh, protected from uh, international competition by federal regulation. I mean, this would attract the likes of Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan for crying out loud.
0: Right. And that's how it,
1: that's how I viewed it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think that's really. I, I think that's really smart to look at it that way. Um, to understand also sort of the the there's a clinical col- coldness. <laughs> To the decisions being made because they're business decisions about how this whole thing works.
1: Yeah, and, and gotta be trust and rest pay cash.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. It says it on
1: my dollar bill too.
0: I have another. Wait a minute. I have another quote that I had a bookmark in. This is from chapter seventeen. My knowledge of my donor conception magnified my loneliness immensely as did the never ending nature of my search, the breakthroughs of discovery and the subsequent impasses. I had no donor conceived camaraderie to lean on. I felt stranded on a remote island alone, longing for a colleague to share the experience with. Um, Can you talk about that and then how that's changed?
1: Well, it was very lonely. I really felt like I was the only person in the whole universe that uh, had this experience. And uh, what I learned in my research is a word called misattributed. I never heard that word before. Your DNA and your birth certificate just don't jive. There's something that's uh, askew there with one or both parents. And I learned that there were several reasons that uh, one could be misattributed. Uh, Late discovery adoption certainly uh, is is a large one. An extramarital affair uh, switched at birth uh, could be the product of a a sexual assault or a one-night stand, or uh, uh, somebody like me who was semi-adopted in the old days, uh, that was the term, secretively conceived through an anonymous donor, in my case, an anonymous sperm donor. And I learned that there were about a million adults that were donor conceived. I never really thought anything about those numbers. And then in 2016, I believe, a support group was founded on uh, Facebook, Uh, We Are Donor Conceived, that began to get some of these people that were learning they were donor conceived together to share uh, experiences and share feelings. And that was uh, when I discovered that, that was 20 plus years after my first uh, inkling that I had this donor conception background and experience, but it was a wonderfully fulfilling uh, experience to talk to other people that have walked in those shoes. Uh, people can be empathetic, but uh, they don't know the know because they don't have never walked that walk.
0: Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I have mixed and mostly negative feelings about Facebook. Speaking of industries, um, and 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 a lot of what the internet has done. However, the ability to bring us all together. Um and and help connect people with similar experiences and create these groups. Just awesome. I'm so glad that platform exists, so that that group could exist um, so that you you could find one another. Another thing I wanted to talk about was that your your dad, you mentioned a little bit. I think it's important, in case anybody's listening who doesn't understand why it might be important to know about your conception, your dad was sick.
1: My dad suffered from unipolar depression and as a younger man, if he got depressed, he could always shake it off. And as he got older, he just couldn't shake it off anymore. So from the time I was 11 until uh, he took his own life when I was 16, he was periodically hospitalized back and forth and just couldn't work. Uh, So uh, old school Italian family on top of that, you know, protective of that information. It was uh, perhaps uh, reflective upon them. They were fearful Mm -hmm. that they would be conceived as flawed. Uh, So I grew up feeling maybe I'm flawed too, and I should keep this quiet. Right. So
0: that's my, that's what I want to talk about was the concern and what is especially unique is just how extreme your father's depression was. That's very, that's, that's really hard. That's a hard life. And he did end up taking his own life.
1: And we're talking in the nineteen early sixties and uh, lithium as a uh, medication really hadn't been discovered until 1968. So his only recourse was a periodic electric shock,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which was no picnic back then. You know, you're strapped to a table and you're biting a stick.
0: Right. So for you to carry that your whole life,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, not, not only just the experience of growing up with your father, but the grief of losing your father, and then the knowledge that um, this, this heavy, <laughs> heavy um, sickness could be inside you is genetically a part of who you are, that's got to have been haunting for 50 years.
1: I always felt a little different in my uh, childhood growing up too. I had my dad's uh, Northern Italian blue eyes, but the only one in the family with a fair complexion and blondish hair. Today I'll get any, I'll take any color I can get, but blondish. <laughs> and uh, I was academic and I had a high achieving academic. And then I went on with uh, some life achievements as well. And some of the members of my family were rather intimidated by that. And I didn't understand that either, but I knew something was just a little askew.
0: You did. That's interesting. Everybody, almost everybody says that.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, So in a sense, when you, when you found out that, that your, your, uh, your father was not your biological um, father, um, did you, did you feel a sense of relief about the depression?
1: Well, you know, it's really confusing and conflicting emotions, Eve. How can you feel happy and sad and shame and pride all at the same time? Uh, I was angry. I was deceived. My birth certificate was a hoax, a willful lie. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was relieved as well. So uh, angry and joyous, empty and fulfilled, every emotion you could possibly experience in waves almost simultaneously. It It was confusing.
0: Yeah, I think confusing is a great word for it. I think we don't have a word for this experience quite yet. It can be really overwhelming to carry all those feelings at the same time, to have uh, anger, relief, sadness, all of those things.
1: Yeah, grief and exhilaration. Right. And I really hadn't grieved properly from my dad to begin with. I was uh, camouflaging that too and uh, developing a crusty veneer to protect myself. And uh, at my uh, wife's suggestion, and actually the suggestion of a few friends as well, I went and I sought some therapy uh, to uh, help me with this confusing uh, range of emotions. And uh, that was something too uh, in both the boardroom as well as in the war room. I had seen that if you were weak or needy, perhaps you were unfit for command. Well, I was a CEO and I kept this thing quiet. Uh, not wanting to be perceived as being unfit for mm-hmm. command, if you will. Uh, and my uh, therapist, I went, I cycled through a couple of therapists before I found the right one that had more of a, a practice in trauma. Uh, and uh, his comment to me right at the get-go is, uh, "I had hit a trifecta mm-hmm. because new trauma often is a catalyst for old trauma." So between the uh, uh, trauma of my childhood and the sickness of my dad and uh, PTSD from uh, a wartime experience that I had never really fully dealt with, and this identity trauma all at the same time, uh, there goes the trifecta. And I couldn't just deal with one. I had to deal with all three in order to effectively deal with it.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's a tall order. I'm glad you found that therapist. I'm curious about... um... You said that you were feeling anxiety before the book came out um, about it, about its reception. Did you, uh, were you worried? Can you read? What were you worried about? (laughs) I guess is what I was going to, I won't make assumptions. I'll just ask.
1: Well, I I really fully exposed myself in this uh, book more so than I've ever done outside of my immediate family. So I'm sharing this with the, the universe, if you will, that by itself was the product of some anxiety, and of course, I'm a high achieving person, and I want a high achieving book. So, yeah, I think every author will feel some element of uh, anxiety about rejection.
0: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I, um, I, yeah, I wondered if if there was anxiety about um, about the about the artificial insemination world. You know, uh, there being backlash somehow, or or um. So I'm I'm glad that wasn't a big concern. There shouldn't be that you're really, um, not even exposed. I mean, you are exposing something. However, this information has been around. It's just that no one, it feels like no one has thought to look at it. it, um, sort of hiding in plain sight. And you have, um, it's really brave of you to use your own story. Uh, it's very vulnerable and, and brave of you to use your own story to, um, as a catalyst for, um, all this information. Well, I, really,
1: I really felt that the, uh, the, the story might have a dry history uh, element to it, unless I could put some personalization to it. So I was looking at it from the lens of somebody that was donor conceived. It was a very unique lens.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I still remember when I was reading it and I wish I had marked the spot, but um, at some point, because if, because by description, you're right. It doesn't sound. Sa- it sounds dry a little bit. Like, oh, it's the history of IVF or some, you know, something like that. Doesn't sound incredibly thrilling. But there was a point in the book where I gasped, oh. and I think I sent you an email that said, um, "There's, you've really done something because you've managed to make this book uh, exciting, emotionally, mm-hmm. um, and informative historically, and that is something that is very, very hard to do." I think. Yeah, I guess I, I was very excited and I couldn't sleep about something the next like if you were going you were going to make some discovery about a family member and I just couldn't <laughs> was just on the edge of my seat.
1: Yeah, well that was the uh, the unveiling of my uh, uh, source of my seed through ancestry.com perhaps. Yeah, could have been. In this uh, in this book I really go over the history of assisted reproductive technology from biblical references right through to today. <laughs> and I can uh, give you a a, a the 10 top secrets of assisted reproductive technology that I explore in that book. The first one was really artificial insemination was perfected. Uh, You remember this by the mad Russian scientist who was nicknamed Red Frankenstein?
0: Yes, I did remember that, I did, I remembered that.
1: And uh, artificial insemination by husband was actually first alleged in, uh, what year do you remember? Oh gosh. Yeah, 1462 by a medieval king.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say like there, I, I was gonna ask you about the biblical references, but right. Yeah. yeah it, it was.
1: And his, his was all about succession to the throne. Right. Of course. He failed in his uh, quest to have his alleged daughter succeeding him to the throne, and of course, Isabella of Spain, who was his half sister, became the uh, leading monarch of Spain thereafter.
0: Even though that's the the fir- the uh, a documented um assisted reproduction. Exp- the assumption is that it was happening all over the place, though, right?
1: Well, the, fir- the first documentation of it, that's the third secret, was actually in 1790 by a physician of the English court. Hmm. Uh, but the first artificial insemination by donor was actually documented, if you remember what year?
0: Oh, I don't remember the years.
1: Yeah, okay. It was in 1886. That surprised me. It was actually a criminal act inside of a med school.
0: That I remember. That part, I remember that it was a criminal act and that it was and then all of it happened so much longer ago than we would think.
1: Yeah, well, that wasn't revealed until 1909. Mm. And uh, then church and state really drove it underground in in a shroud of secrecy for about 50 years. Uh, until I think 1973, when it started to uh, uh, come out a little bit more. The early assisted reproductive technology through donor in in the early 20th century had somewhat of a eugenics overtone to it as Mm -hmm. well, to be the selected few, the chosen chosen people. And it was actually frozen bull semen back to the farm in the 1950s that enabled uh, the uh, Wild West of gamut distribution and all of the banks that we have today. And then, of course, number eight in this top secrets, 21st century DNA technology has obsoleted all of the practices, uh, 20th century practices in assisted reproductive technology, but they're still practiced. Right. Go figure that That
0: was going to be my question. It was a two-part question, Peter. One was going to be, do they still try to assure people anonymity? The donors, mm-hmm. and then secondly, has donation gone down? Do you know?
1: Yeah, well, uh, donation has not gone down; it's uh, gone up. Really? Yes, in in absolute numbers, in absolute numbers. Of course, your first question: uh, Did it impact anonymity?
0: Yeah, I mean, I just now that if modern day technology has made some of the the the, the gammy donation process obsolete as far as the, their assurance of, of anonymity and their record keeping and things like that. I would just imagine they couldn't even promise anybody that anymore.
1: Yeah, they, they can't do that, uh, of course, but the, the, the dots don't connect for me. Uh, the uh, Gamut Banks uh, will talk about uh, giving a donor a choice to be known or unknown. Right. And and the known donor would uh, be known to the uh, recipient at age 18, the donor might want to keep his uh, identity a secret but he's willing to reveal uh, medical health and that sort of thing and this is all done uh, selectively by the recipient by the parents and the the bank Mm -hmm. and the donor can change his mind uh, midstream let's say uh, 18 years go by oh no I, i changed my mind i don't want to do that But it doesn't matter anymore because through DNA now there's 50 million people people in the DNA database and every Black Friday another 2 million people get added to that database.
0: You're absolutely right.
1: So now we have uh, February in in my world, in the donor-conceived world, is uh, half-jokingly referred to as new sibling season.
0: Yeah. Well, though that's so great because I was gonna call it something like it's um just in for the for the whole MPE community. It's like
1: well, sure, you got too many people added to the database at uh, at the, the holiday season, give it eight weeks to process and then absolutely. February the sibling season.
0: hmm New sibling season. Absolutely. Shock season. Um and are you still are are siblings still popping up for you occasionally?
1: I had a new a couple of new siblings pop up actually last February, and we'll ah. see what, we'll see what happens this February. okay. you know okay. it's it's really amazing now. My first question, in addition to uh, what's my genealogy, what's my medical health history, uh, And uh, do I have any siblings? Now, my only unanswered question is, how many siblings do I have really? Now I'm not the product of a frozen sperm generation. Everything was a live fire exercise when I was conceived. Right. Uh, and uh, my parents had a uh, an ethical doctor who was not using his own sperm on a countless hundreds of of uh, patients. So I'm not likely to have a hundred siblings. But I don't know how many I have really. The six of us at last count, the two have met. Uh, the other four don't seem to want to know.
0: Oh. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, are they all around your age?
1: Uh, within 10 years. I'm the oldest. I'm the oldest. Oh, okay. I, I've, I have found a sibling that is five months younger than I. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We to term each other the Irish twins.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that gives a whole new idea of Irish twins. Uh,
1: absolutely. She used to think she was Irish. She's not Irish anymore. No, no. I used to think I was Italian. I'm not Italian.
0: Welcome to the club. Right.
1: I have a cousin that terms me now the logical Italian. Mm-hmm.
0: Here's a question, just about if if you read the book, you know that your you your daughter Tracy helped you immensely with the research process. Um, is she? Is she still involved uh, in looking into history with you? She is that something you guys still do together?
1: Yes. Uh, periodically, we will. Uh, Uh, look at varying things together more along the lines now of the DNA and what we find regarding DNA. My son was actually active with me as well, but when I was on the East Coast, he was living here in California. Uh, So uh, my daughter was in New York and I was in Boston. So we were from a time zone standpoint and a distance standpoint, she was better able to give me the assistance that I needed.
0: Right. Yep. That absolutely makes sense.
1: She actually is a terrific forensic researcher as well. I told her she has another career if she ever wants to move into it.
0: That is a, an impressive skill set,
1: mm-hmm. for sure.
0: My next question is about a question: Is there anything I, you wish I had asked you, or that you were that you think is a good question that someone has
1: offered? Uh, fertility rates uh, in the Western world uh, are down. How much do you think? In the last four decades,
0: a lot because my dad yeah. just talked to me about this. Mm-hmm. He brought in the newspaper article.
1: Fifty percent.
0: Wow. Uh,
1: two primary reasons: uh, one is environmental, and another one is uh, people are just waiting longer to uh, raise a family, and the biological clock is not cooperating. So that fifty percent drop in fertility rate—if uh, you put a trajectory on that could actually threaten the longevity of the human race uh, by the 2045, and that's not that far out. No. But the ranks of the donor conceived as a population has increased by 50%, percent five zero percent just in the last decade.
0: Oh, wow. So that, that rate is increasing much faster than the rate is, than the fertility rate is decreasing.
1: <laughs> right. Well, it, the sociology has mm-hmm. changed a great deal. It's not just heterosexual couples, it's same-sex couples and single people, mostly women that are conceiving children with the benefit of uh, a gamut Mm -hmm. uh, distribution. And uh, that brings together the the comment about the gamut distribution system, uh, the the sperm and the egg banks and so forth, uh, that are in need of a fix in my estimation. And they help the conception of dozens, if not a 100 or more siblings from the same donor with nobody's knowledge and no registry of, uh, of uh, being able to track them, how you mm-hmm. like the day sibling, mm-hmm. uh, the no genetic testing of uh, a, a donor that's required. Uh, they can uh, answer a questionnaire, but it's not checked. It's just all self-answering. So there's, there's many of uh, some sins in that practice that need to be fixed. There is under no regulation on this as well. Uh, the uh, society, American Society for Reproductive Medicine (ASRM), is the only trade association that's uh, got any authority, and it's only a recommendation. They don't really have authority. They provide education and uh, some networking for their practitioners, and they are a lobbying organization. They're providing uh, public policy. Uh, activity on behalf of their membership. The membership is in 100 different countries, although their name is uh, American, they're represented in 100 different countries. And their recommendation is that the population of gamut distribution be restricted so that uh, there's uh, 25 conceptions from one donor per 800,000 population. Now let's just talk about that. That's a recommendation. Right. And many, many of the sperm and yay banks claim that they will uh, honor that recommendation. Well, that means if I lived in Sacramento, as an example, mm-hmm. I'd have 25 siblings. Right. Now, in metropolitan Boston, using that recommendation... I'd have 125 siblings. Right,
0: I was just doing that math. I was like, wait a minute, if it's by population, then, but then if I
1: were down where you are in L.A. or in New York City, where my daughter is, I'd have 250 siblings. So I'm thinking, you know, is that a, a reg- is that recommendation valid? Does that have any kind of uh, orientation towards uh, the donor, or, or the the, uh, the donor conceived that is if one person went to one sperm bank as a, for instance, what if he went to four?
0: Right. There's no, there's not a a uh, database. So instead
1: of 250 times two, I could have a thousand. There's something seriously askew in an unregulated industry that enables the conception of uh, dozens, if not a hundred or more siblings from the same donor with nobody's knowledge, no way of registering it, no requirement to genetically test, no requirement to uh, give the genetic health history to uh, the uh, donor conceived. Uh, And there's no uh, laws preventing fertility fraud or penalizing fertility fraud. Uh, It might be unethical, but it's not unlawful. So there's no recourse, there's no recourse. Who do you go to see if you are the victim of fertility fraud? Mm So what I hope uh, that I can get from this book, what I aspire to to get is, uh, well, several fold. Uh, To be a uh, uh, representative of many of the feelings of the misattributed, to impact uh, the practice of assisted reproductive technology positively, and to shine some sort of a legislative light on this thing and impact the legislative agenda to gain a... uh, a donor conceived bill of rights and the donors all have rights and the uh, recipients all have rights. And sure they do, but can you point at anyone? Can you point to one right that somebody like me might have? Right. No. That's a void.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So I'm
1: somewhat of a Don Quixote here to uh, right the wrongs.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love it. That's great. That was going to be my next question was what, what are your hopes for this book? Um, and, are um, are there people out there working legislative uh, on the legislative side of things? That-
1: uh, there's a patchwork quilt, uh, my words, Eve, of activity that is state by state for one particular area, genetic testing, as an example, and it's uh, is it is state by state, but there's no real federal activity on this thing, so. Uh, I'm hopeful that the state by state activity will uh, gain a momentum and my book can help shine a light on this and we can gain some sort of a federal activity on this and package it all up as a donor conceived bill of rights as opposed to we pick one thing here and one thing there and a third thing here in one state over there and one state over there and one state over there.
0: Mm-hmm. The donor conceived bill of rights. I love that. Was there anything else I was supposed to ask you? Do you think? You tell me. Did- <laughs> Did we do all 10 of the secrets? Uh,
1: well, the last one we didn't do.
0: Okay. What's that uh, one?
1: You, uh, we talked about Red Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And the 10th the, the secret is one that hasn't been unveiled just yet. What will be the nickname of the next Red Frankenstein? Now, we have uh, science moving so rapidly. And it's uh, back from uh, the farm. You have the cloning of sheep and cocker spaniels. Uh, just last year at uh, a research university in Australia, Monash University, they're, they're, they're very strong in the area of reproductive science. They were able to create a model embryo from skin. No egg, no sperm. So without some sort of uh, an ethics mandate. What is the nickname of the next red Frankenstein? We'll see.
0: Have they published a paper about it yet? Yes, they have Wow yeah.
1: okay. February of uh, last year actually.
0: okay Wow, I don't know but that 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 would be a whole new
1: yeah whole already new... we can manipulate genes uh, to uh, the traits. Uh, to enable a conception. And there was one Chinese doctor who in 2019 got sentenced to three years for doing just that.
0: Because that goes, I mean, that starts to to feel like eugenics pretty quickly.
1: Oh, yeah, pretty quickly, doesn't it? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty scary. Well, I just loved your book. I thought it was, so, it was great. It was wonderful to get to spend some time with you today.
1: Thank you, Eve. Same yeah, here. It
0: really is a good book. I really did gasp. I really did feel informed and um, continuously inspired to work towards change and information and education about all all of this uh, world that conception world. The not only donor conception, but all the concept, you know misattributed conception world um, needs to change.
1: Well, I've combined a very intimate memoir, if you will, to, uh, along with a tell-all exposé about an industry that is out of control and needs a fix.
0: Yeah, awesome. That sounds like something I would want to read.
1: Well, thanks for the visibility, Eve. I appreciate it. That yeah,
0: nice. absol- absolutely, absolutely. Um, you're doing a you're doing a good thing by by telling your story. And it is brave. It is brave to to use your own story to make it ex- an accessible medium. That's really important. So uh, yeah, so thank you for contributing to the library of misattributed parentage um, information, knowledge, education, uh, movement, change. Thank you again to Mr. Bonnie for giving me his morning. Uh, Thank you to his son for hosting him in the East Bay so that he and I could be in the same time zone. Thank you to his daughter for helping him with all that research. I have gratitudes for all the parts that made our time together possible. Run, don't walk to your bookstore. Uh, get a copy of this book, Uprooted, Family Trauma, Unknown Origins, and the Secretive History of Artificial Insemination. I also have a link on my website if you're looking for a way to find Peter's book um, and or all the books that I have featured here on the podcast. Just go to my website, podcast.com. Speaking of books, I am thrilled to know that by the time this episode airs, it is definitely official that the process journal that I worked on all winter is available for you. If you are hearing this podcast, then the journal is available. Um, I can't explain how nervous I was, everyone. It felt really touch and go there for a while. Uh, It is called, Who Even Am I Anymore?, I created it for you and me and everyone like us who might appreciate a little guidance in processing their DNA discovery. It really uh, was a labor of love, and I'm really proud of it. But more than that, I am eager for our community to have more resources. So head to my website or Amazon and get yourself a copy of Who Even Am I Anymore? No matter where you are in your journey. And I'll be here again next week with a new way to explore all the ways that DNA testing is changing our world. If you have a story that you want to share, email me, Eve at Everything's Relative Find me on the socials at Everything's Relative Podcast. If you like anything you've heard today, throw me a star rating. Write me a review. And whether you do that or not, thanks so much for being here. Even if you're hate listening, I'm grateful for it. Bye-bye, everybody. Take your shoes off before you go inside. Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis is produced by Eve Sturgis and Cailin Egan and edited by Joy Rumel. Logo designed by Ivy McNally and music is used with permission from Goodbye the Band. Eve is a licensed psychotherapist but her podcast episodes are not therapy sessions.